This was the song of the marchers outside of Cobo Center, Friday, January 18th. The workers united will never be divided. The toilers united. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and 300 others had some things to say about the Green New Deal and the closure of GM plants in Michigan. Every single human being that was removed from the Paul Powell community, every I'm Catherine Newhan. What is the Green New Deal? This story and more on this week's episode of the Daily Weekly. Hey Josh, thanks for coming on a field trip with me this Friday. It was definitely an interesting first trip to Detroit. Yeah, it was pretty exhilarating. There was so much energy and some powerful messages being sent to the gala goers. There was quite a bit of commotion and right outside of the Detroit Auto Show's charity preview. Yeah, it seemed to like amp out, amp up out of nowhere. And there were so many people surrounding this person with a blowhorn. And I didn't really know what was going on. Yeah, and then you checked Twitter and saw it was Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Yeah, and I was like, what? (laughs) She was giving a pretty fiery speech, though. You cannot tell us that after we gave you so much, so much of our sweat and tears and our public dollars for our bailout, that you will sit there and abandon us. Then the band started playing really loud and the people were singing chants and circling the entrance of Kobo. And then we were chasing Congresswoman Tlaib and got to ask her some questions about the Green New Deal. Just know that even GM's closure shows you the importance of the Green New Deal. The fact that we need to start looking at creating jobs that are beyond the traditional jobs that we've seen over the years in history in the city of Detroit and around the nation. There needs to be real accountability and oversight and co-ownership when it comes to creating new jobs in our country. And the Green New Deal provides that structure to be able to have that yeah, what, can, what can college students do right now to help out with this? You know, they need to basically demand accountability. I can tell you, if more of us come on out to not only a protest but vote, more of us running for office, all of those elements at all different levels of government, then we're going to have louder and louder uh, uh, voices that, that push this kind of movement to actually become a reality. Yeah, and what is the message that we're getting today, um, you know, demonstrating outside of the auto show? Basically, the hypocrisy of the fact that we're here for, uh, you know, this annual charity event. While they're in there, you know, we're seeing the suffering of working families that now have to lose their jobs because of corporate greed. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. Thank you so much. Hudson Villeneuve is a junior at Eastern Michigan University. He's attempting to establish a chapter of the Sunrise Movement in Ann Arbor. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. So can you explain what the Sunrise Movement is in general? Yeah, of course. Um, Sunrise Movement is a group of young people working to tackle the crisis of climate change. Um, It got started about a year and a half ago with a handful of angry college students who were fed up 
um, with politicians, particularly uh, the Democratic Party, um, because they're the, supposed to be the ones that get climate change, uh, for not dealing with the scale of the problem. Um, they felt that our voices weren't being heard. We thought that uh, these politicians, who are you know mostly baby boomers, uh, were putting off um, dealing with climate change, which affects our generation the most. So these group of college students started this movement to hold politicians accountable to facing the crisis. Where, where in the country did this movement start? Um, it was mostly in the New England area. It was people from Boston, people from New York, Washington, D.C., Virginia. Um, it was kind of started in that area of the country um, in the summer of 2017. And then after or during the 2018 election cycle, it kind of gained momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, they started a campaign to, to um, hold politicians accountable by making them take a no fossil fuel pledge, mm-hmm. uh, which means politicians would pledge to not take any donations from oil, gas or coal companies. And that was one of the ways uh, we, we got a major success in the 2018 cycle of our 30 endorsed candidates, 19 won in the midterms. Um, be- yeah. yeah, it was really great. So I heard that you were at the DSA protest last Friday um, outside the Kobo Center. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so last Friday, uh, GM and all the other auto companies were held holding their annual um, auto show, um, which we deemed the auto prom. Um, because just recently General Motors announced layoffs that could affect over 15,000 workers, including uh, a plant in Hamtramck, um, which is known as the mm-hmm. Town plant. Mm-hmm. In 1981, uh, the government used eminent domain to seize this neighborhood of, typ- of predominantly Polish people to make way for GM's plant. And then here, 35 years later, um, they're closing that plant. Uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, we, the American taxpayers and people, bailed out GM and the other auto companies because they promised us jobs. And now, just a few years later, they're turning our backs on us and um, closing factories in, in, our, in our home state and in our country. Um, so we thought it was right that we would go there and protest GM and demand that they keep the plant open, um, but preferably switch it to a green uh, jobs community where we're not just producing mm-hmm. automobiles, but we're producing green technology like um, windmills and solar panels so that we can convert our economy to a green economy um, to address the problem of climate change. Have you received any sort of follow-up from people in GM from that protest? Um, not yet, not yet. Mm-hmm. We got to keep pushing. Um, it was our first stage of what our plan is to make Detroit the engine of the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is Sunrise and the DSA's main plan to address climate change. Um, it's a it's a plan that not only wants to transition our economy to 100% renewable energy, but it also wants to provide good paying jobs through a federal jobs guarantee, which would guarantee every American a job in the renewable energy sector. Um, ranging from low-level skill jobs to top engineering jobs, kind mm-hmm. of like FDR's New Deal uh, back in the 1930s and 40s. Got you. So it's not the, the, I know there's a myth like the green jobs are for like the elite or for the educated. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of counteracting that then? Yeah, exactly. Um, a lot of special interests like to uh, conflate environmentalism with lack of jobs. 
Um, but we believe that we have a unique opportunity um, to transition our economy to renewable energy sources that would provide millions of good paying jobs, uh, to especially to people in Detroit. We're, we were the home of the auto industry. We invented the middle class in Michigan. We think we can do that same thing over again, but instead of building cars, building renewable energy infrastructure. So just a next step in the development of this country. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so do you think that when the 2018 primaries happened, that's when the majority of the awareness around the Sunrise Movement gained popularity? Well, we really gained popularity after the election. Um, There were two sit-ins that we organized in Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., in uh, then-House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi's office. And the first one, um, newly elected Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came in and actually spoke to a group of Sunrise protesters who were sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office calling for her to embrace what's called a Green New Deal and tackle the problem of climate change. And about 50 Sunrisers were arrested during that sit-in. Mm. Um, and then three weeks later, in December of, of 2018, we had another protest in, in uh, Speaker Pelosi's office. And I actually got to participate in that one. And I was arrested yeah. along with 140 others. So what was the process of being arrested like? Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, we were sitting in her office, uh, you know, crowded, very, very crowded. And we had a line of people going out the hallway. And uh, we were singing and chanting, calling on her to tackle the problem of climate change. Um, the police came in and said, gave us a couple warnings and said, you guys are disrupting, you need to leave, or you'll be arrested, you'll be arrested. It was very clear. Were they giving you a reason for being arrested? Was it just like trespassing? Essentially, it was trespassing um, and disrupting order. I can't remember what my official charge was. I have it on a piece of paper. Um, (laughs) But it it was very calm, you know, we weren't, it's not like we were tackled to the ground or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, when When I was actually arrested by the officer, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you are being arrested. It was very clear what was happening and put me in zip ties and escorted me off onto like a, a type of van. And then we were escorted to a warehouse where all 140 of us um, sat for warehouse. about seven to eight hours until they processed us. We posted bail and we were let off. When you say warehouse, are you speaking about like like a real warehouse or it was on a police compound um like there were police vehicles but it was a physical warehouse in every sense of the word it's just a big empty building a bunch of chairs in there they had us Mm. sit down searched us uh fingerprinted us and read us our rights and, and processed us and yeah yes um well why did you decide to create a chapter like did you see a need for it in this particular area you obviously have been very involved in it so yeah I mean Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti and Washtenaw County is the most progressive county in the entire state and we have a lot of energy here that we need to capture and put into the climate change movement to tackle this problem um, and it only made sense uh, that there would be a chapter here um, we need to get the youth at we have like four colleges right in this tiny little area, Eastern mm-hmm. Michigan, University of Michigan, numerous community colleges that we can take those students and, and turn them into activists and actually make a change. What makes the Sunrise Movement um, particularly unique as a growing like cause and um, as the awareness for climate change is increasing or becoming more urgent? 
Yeah, well, we use what's called a distributed organizing model, which means there's not really a top-down hierarchy structure. Anyone Mm -hmm. who wants to can get a Sunrise Hub started. Um, If you're in a city or a college town or anywhere you want, you can contact the Sunrise people and they'll help give you the tools necessary to start up a hub. You don't have to apply for a job or, or, you know, necessarily really go through any process. They'll, They'll give you the training and tools you'll need to set it up. So hubs are are sprouting up all across the country. We're over uh, at 100 right now um, because it's it's a movement that requires people to take initiative and people are tired of sitting down and doing nothing and those young people are actually taking initiative and, and we're really getting going. Um, we're not really tied down to like bureaucracy or like long processes where we have to get approval for things. We're just seeing what the problem is, knowing what the solutions are and making sure our politicians are held accountable for those issues. Yeah, great. Um, Well, thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. No problem. Thank you. I'm here again with Josh Sadikoff, our associate producer, and we're going to go through the weekly roundup. Do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, the first story we have is on the grilled cheesery closing for a second time, and it's brought to us by Alex Herring. This next update bears some bad news. The grilled cheesery sandwich shop is closing after four years in Ann Arbor. Originating in Southgate in 2014, owner Nick Costa said he was inspired by his time living in Montreal, where he would often eat at cheese bars. Grilled Cheesery closed less than a year later, then reopened to Packard Street in Ann Arbor, offering more than 10 varieties of sandwiches along with macaroni and cheese, soups, and salads. This counter-service restaurant was certainly a staple to Michigan's campus community the past five years. The restaurant is now listed on Google as permanently closed. I live on Packard, two minutes away from there, and I'm convinced it closed because me and my housemate went vegan last year, so. I could believe it. I've been there a few <laughs> times. I mean, it's been very late in the night, so I wouldn't Yeah, because they would open until 3 a.m. Which is a wonderful amenity. Which you would think that they would thrive yeah. by doing that in a college campus, in a college town, but sadly not. They will be missed. On Monday, the university had many events in honor of MLK Day. So some of the events that they had were Value the Voice, where speakers share their stories based on their identities. Uh, There was an MLK Day keynote memorial lecture, and um, this was a university effort to educate people on MLK Day and the efforts that have been done since his time. And the keynote speakers were Julia Putnam and Tim Wise. And then there was the second annual King Talks, and this event featured four graduate students, speakers who shared how their work and life experiences related to the legacy of Dr. King. So yeah, even though we had the day off, there was a ton of events going on. I was getting a ton of emails from professors on different events to go to, so it seemed like they did a a very nice job keeping everyone in in touch with what's going on. Indeed they did. I went to the... uh the Bell Tower event. They, oh, they had a number of uh, black composers' works being played on the Burton Memorial Tower, oh, and nice. they allowed individuals to get all the way up to the bells. Oh my God! So Did you say so you went all the way up to the I bells? Went all the way to the bells. I'm jealous. It was a, it was I'd be scared. Time. I'm scared of heights. It was <laughs> a, a good way of uh, honoring the day. Yeah, and it's like beautiful music too. So very good music. 
Uh, to go to our next report, CSG put out a study of off-campus housing based off of responses from students. Sam Small, a reporter for The Daily, reported that the idea of having a survey arose last winter during CSG elections. According to CSG President Daniel Green, the study is meant to empower students to make more informed decisions about off-campus housing. Students were able to rate their landlords on a variety of factors, and I highly recommend that you check it out because it's very interesting and it has many graphs and many numbers. <laughs> That's not my style, but what was like some of the key findings from it? There's actually a page towards the beginning with a summary of key findings, and just to read some of those off, uh, students are generally unhappy with the off-campus housing search process, which as we talked about a little bit in a past episode in off-campus housing. Yeah, check out our housing episode from October. <laughs> I think October, yeah. Um, it, it can be very difficult, very stressful, and it starts very early. Um, the average monthly rent, according to the survey, is $832. Woo! <laughs> and uh, there's also on this page a table where they have all of the property property managers uh, that got more than five responses in the survey and a rating, and you can check where your property manager is on this and compare your experience to those builders. Yeah, I think they'll be good. I mean, I already signed my lease for next year, so maybe I'll check out my, <laughs> my, my uh, future landlords, see if they're on there. Gwen? Tessier, a university alum and former university employee, alleges her employment was terminated as a result of reporting sexual harassment. With us is senior news editor and reporter Rachel Cunningham to tell us more about her investigative piece. So give us a quick rundown of the main timeline of this story. Sure. So I was a summer senior news editor this past summer. And I believe it was end of April or beginning of May, we had gotten a news tip about a MSU professor who had also been a university researcher doing like political science, social science researcher at the time that had some sexual harassment allegations against him. So when I looked into this, um, there had been some graduate students that had worked under him or had worked at or that were students at ICPSR, which was the university research institute that he was working at at the time that had alleged that there was harassment going mm -hmm. on you know being accosted about having affairs with him unwanted touching things of that nature mm -hmm. um, so after publishing that piece Gwen reached out to me about a week afterwards saying that even though she wasn't particularly harassed by William Jacoby she had some incidents with another researcher that was working mm -hmm. there Dieter Burrell and Jacoby was in charge of the program at the time that she was working for. And mm. when she had complained to him, it wasn't really getting anywhere. And she had complained to the university, the complaining through OIE and human resources and felt like she didn't really, wasn't really getting anywhere. And that after she had reported what was happening, that the nature of the job was just getting more and more negative. And then eventually she was let go they said that it was for cost reduction you know they couldn't afford to keep her around anymore but mm -hmm. given the environment that she was in at the time and that no one was really doing anything about it she felt it was because she reported the harassment she was experiencing yeah um so um there was a conflict of interest yeah so initially 
um, Gwen had hired a lawyer who works at Knocked Law, which is a law firm here in Ann Arbor, and Charlotte Crozen was initially her lawyer at the time when she um, wanted to file a lawsuit against the university for what had happened. And then a little bit after she was working on getting that all together, um, Crozen had to drop her case because of a conflict of interest, but not law wouldn't explain to her what that case was. So mm. she had to pick up a new lawyer. She didn't end up filing a lawsuit per se, but she was thinking about it at the time, but they didn't explain to her what the conflict of interest was. They just said that there was one and had to drop her case because of it. Is that like necessarily normal in these situations or was it pretty like weird? Um, I mean... I think it might be normal in case like something comes up that that lawyer doesn't feel comfortable with, given maybe they know the accused very well mm. or something of that nature. But what I thought was a little bit odd was that um, from Gwen's point of view, they didn't explain to her what it was. They just said, hey, we have a conflict of interest. Sorry, we can't work with you anymore. And then when I had reached out to Crozen for comment, she declined to comment because she didn't currently represent her. So there's just a little bit of ambiguity in terms of what that conflict of interest was, it seems. Yeah, and then um, tell us a little bit more about the article that Jacoby posted while he was editor-in-chief at the Political Science Journal. It was mentioned in your article. Sure. So when he was editor-in-chief at that journal and the allegations of sexual harassment had came up, he posted in a statement on the website that these allegations aren't true, I've never done this, but he didn't get permission from the journal or the, I forget what the organization above it that's called, he didn't get permission to publish that statement. Mm -hmm. And so he came under fire for that, for using the journal to dismiss the allegations that had came up against him and so people pressured him to resign because of it and then ultimately he did. And has there been any follow-up since you've published this story with faculty, with Gwen? Um, I haven't gotten much so far but it's something that we think we want to look into a little bit more just like what we've learned from this case and other news tips we've gotten maybe not related specifically to ICPSR but other things going on at the university. The story has definitely lent us into looking into things in the future that are going on campus that maybe other people are experiencing similar things. Sure, yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Daily Weekly. Again, I'm your host, Katherine Newhan. This episode was produced by audio engineer Ryan Cox, executive producer Catherine Newhan, and associate producer Joshua Sadikoff. Tune in next week if you're a news geek. <laughs>